Hello everyone and welcome to A Pint with Peter, an informative and somewhat comedy podcast where I sit down with my dad and we try to bridge the intergenerational gap. Now dad, before Chris's arrival you said we're going to chat about the drugs and music of the 70s. Yeah, I mean I, I always try to avoid cliches so I'm not even going to say sex, drugs and rock and roll because... Um, Let's face it, for a gentleman of my age, sex, drugs and rock and roll has taken a whole different form. But anyway, let's not go there. Um, let's get in our time machine, guys, and let's go back in time. I'm going to use a bit of my hypnotherapy skill tonight to fiddle around with the uh, scenery and the props of the 1970s. You know, what was going on? I, I was a youth then. What was going on in that particular play? Uh, I'm going to focus, hopefully, on the influences of the period. I mean, I, f I find it quite incredible that even in, in tired old Britain, it, it probably would be described as the psychedelic age. So... If if we get to about, you know, the 25-minute mark, and I'm still talking about stuff that isn't related to acid, give me a nudge and uh, I'll, I'll move things on. Um, I've got a few disclaimers, as usual. Uh, I was reading some stuff this morning by Adam Smith. Do you know who Adam Smith is? Can't say I do. No, he's not somebody you went to school with. Very common name, isn't it? He, he was he was a leading economist. And uh, I think what's central to this conversation, this is Adam Smith speaking, the great mob of humankind are worshippers and admirers of wealth and greatness. And I'm going to talk tonight, obviously, about the pop music industry and uh, you know what people like myself were listening to in that time thinking back on it and I, and I was looking at some really good stuff earlier on about the modern influences i don't know how much you guys follow these influences you know the sort of people who earn millions and they're always against a backdrop of some kind of um... oh, i think i can probably say i think i follow none you follow none no i mean alex does i don't know about your partner, Chris? No. Sure about dogs. Dogs and cats. Oh, all about the dogs and cats. I mean, even dogs can be an influencer now. That's true. That's right. I yeah. always find yeah. it funny yeah. that a dog probably earns more than me and Chris combined. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we can we can get into that stuff later because I I was thinking earlier about how even uh, dead artists can earn a load of books nowadays. Can't well, you they? see Einstein on is it on, on the energy posters? Energy posters now. I mean, I've, I've I've written down here always, always the groundlings pay tribute. <laughs> they pay tribute to the supposedly interesting, fabulous uh, creators of music and so on, don't they? You know, you know what a groundling is. It's from Shakespeare. Uh, yeah, the cheap seats where where the groundlings sat. Uh, yeah, yeah, literally next to the ground. I okay. like that term. I mean, I mean, let's face it. Uh, everything nowadays is about relatability isn't it? it's all about relatability we're watching at the moment the uh, program set in in bristol the outlaws oh, yeah. which I, I think is a real success but one of the characters in it I, I think i think it's very well drawn is the girl the posh girl the aristocratic girl who's an influencer. Have you watched the programme? No, I'm about to start watching it. I'm all interested. Uh, if you watch it, 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 it's fantastic. And it's all about relatability, isn't it? And as it was, you know, as a kind of hippie 
kid in you know my late teens in my 20s you you saw these individuals and you related to them and it's like the influences now you know you see them and you, you look at what they're dressing and what they're talking about what they're buying and what they're pushing but I, I think a lot of it is illusion I, I call it the relatability illusion but it's always been massive so you know somebody like me you know, I never played in a band, so I, I guess I'm part, like a lot of guys uh, and you know, women of the time, I'm part bystander, part active participant. And to me, you could spend a whole podcast on it. Uh, I, I think people like ourselves, you know, with all due respect, you're kind of culturally bourgeois. You with me? Yes, essentially pauperized. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? When you look at the fabulous wealth that um, you know the influences and the pop stars of your actually you know dragged in, uh, I, I find it really really interesting. So, a little warning: um, every time I talk. It's obviously autobiographical, and I guess it's faction. Everything I I try to tell you is a kind of blend of uh, fact and fiction. And don't don't forget, I sometimes need pure invention because I'm aging rapidly, guys. You know, I think we can carry on for a little bit longer. But uh, let's just call tonight the 70s, survival of the fatuous, yeah? You with me? So a, a disclaimer before we, uh, you know, trawl through some of the weird traits of the seventies because it was a, a weird era, and that's what I'm going to focus on tonight. You know, seventy to seventy six, as I said before, when punk started kicking in. I'm, g- I'm going to offer up, uh, you know, what you might find is appalling. Some of the things I'm going to say, some of you you might find quite delicious. But again, I'd hammer this point home. What you've got to remember is, you know, if I guess if you were a punk or I guess if you were into, you know, really into grunge or any of these youth movements, although the hippie thing was, I think, the first mass movement, you're still talking, I, I think, 0.1%, a tiny minority at the heart of, of, of what's going on. And I've pushed this point with you many times before. If you if you get any books or any uh, accounts of this period, I think you are given a very, very false account. And I, I can't push that message more strongly uh, because for me, my recollection is, is most people, silly people like myself, would have called them straights. Yeah, I mean, the straights, uh, they occupied a world that was following a completely different game. Are you with me? But I guess... Uh, I guess some others were kind of cheering the movement on from the psychedelic sidelines, yeah? Because it was a very psychedelic era. It, it's amazing. And and it's a, it's a line of continuity that is continuing to this very, very day. I was out in the charity shops earlier. No, I wasn't looking for clothes, but uh, I've got a really great book there. It's a very promising book by a guy called Julian Cope, who you're talking early 80s. He was, uh, I guess, leader of a band called The Teardrop Explodes. Yeah. Excellent name. I was just about to say. Yeah, it's from, I think name. it's from Lloyd, Roy Lichtenstein. I know you always cut out my artistic references, but it, it's it's from a, a Roy Lichtenstein drawing. You know the one? Mm. It did the comic book. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, I, I've only read a little bit of it, but... Julian Cope is a, con- a continuity piece of what I'm going to talk about to you tonight. I mean, what 
they played was essentially described as psychedelic rock. So his influences, this would have been, you know, 1982, 83, they were massive. Uh, they played, uh, they called it Toppy, Top of the Pops a few times. It was a weird thing because although they were cool, as it were, like T-Rex, they also had a massive uh, teeny bopper following. Teeny bopper, like teens? Yeah, Teenage girls, you know, following them around everywhere and all, all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a real dilemma, I think, for some bands. But him being him, because he's quite eccentric, he used to actually berate them from the stage, but it just made them more fanatical. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He, 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 he despised them. It was a minority thing, and that, that kind of um, excess, uh, you know, those lashings of orgiastic hedonism that you, that you hear about, they, they certainly were there with bands like Led Zeppelin and so on and so forth. And if, if, if you read that Julian Cope book, I mean, he, he describes touring in, in the States, you know, touring right across the States. And the, the hedonism that was available to these people is, is off the scale. But the important thing is, as this is kind of going to be an acid, hopefully acid-saturated conversation tonight, he, and obviously a lot of the people around him, are really heavy acid users, which, uh, you know, I, I find absolutely fascinating. And this would have been, you know, virtually not a decade on, but, uh, you know, seven or eight years on from what I'm talking about tonight. So, okay, uh, close your eyes. Uh, I've got my hypnotherapy book there. Open your minds. Friday evening, is your, is your mind still intact? So let's try and locate the trance state, okay? Now, if you're doing hypnotherapy, you have what's called a deepener. Are you with me? A deepener is once you've, uh, the type of hypnotherapy I used to do, you actually start off by, you can't actually touch people. You know, you, you, you run your finger around their eyes or, or you, you get them to think through their body. It's like a whole body relaxation. And the deepener is usually, uh, you get somebody to visualize a set of steps, it's usually steps, and you go down the steps. And it's usually onto a beach, uh, you know, a place of your choosing, a place where you feel really comfortable. Yeah. So, you know, my deepener is I, w I want you guys to um, imagine that, uh, you know, linking with the last one, we're, we're back at the Mother's Club. Remember? I'm in my dressing gown. Okay. <laughs> and I've got a copy. I'm painting a picture for you. I've got a copy of Carlos Castaneda's latest book. It's called The Yaki Way of Knowledge. More on that later. And I'm, I'm carrying my uh, Carlos Castaneda book in my Moroccan shoulder bag. Yeah? I mean, do you... Um, yeah, going back to athletics, do you think this um, ethnic uh, artifact vibe is still quite strong now? It comes and goes, doesn't it? I mean, these, these shoulder bags, they were kind of knitted, you know, probably by some 10-year-old Berber kid or whatever. And, uh, you know, they, they were beautiful colours and everything. I mean, the other feature I remember from those times was very beautiful glass beads that would come from uh, Morocco and places like that. Do you think that <sighs> chic, that I kind of... So. I still want to say old, older generation... You know, like the hippies you see walking around, Affleck. Yeah. Like it's more likely going to be seen on one of them than... 
the more was... new age kind of hippie. Yeah, I, I don't think so because new age hippie is all about cultural appropriation. Yeah, they'll have like a hemp bag. Ah, that's interesting. There. Yeah, so it'd be quite dodgy if you wouldn't walk around wearing yeah. the fez, for example, would yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Well, interestingly, I heard I was listening to another podcast yesterday, and the comedian Phil Wang was being interviewed. Oh, yeah. And yeah. obviously he's he's part yeah of English, course yeah part, I, 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 I know, know. Part yeah, yeah 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 and he was talking about cultural appropriation and his um view on it is basically that's how culture evolves if you if you're not doing it you know basically he was talking about um a girl in America who'd worn like a Chinese silk dress mm-hmm. to a prom mm-hmm. and she was a, mm-hmm. a white girl and he was like this girl's chosen so like for the most important social event of her lo- life today to wear this gown so she's clearly got respect for it and thinks it's beautiful yeah I don't think that's cultural appropriation yeah He's like, this is how culture evolves. Yeah. I, I, I think the key term clearly there is respect. Exactly. If you're entering to, into something with that quality and you're not entering into it with disdain or, or disparagement, it's all about intention, isn't yeah. it? It's all about intention. Right. So Can't Heat, they've just finished their set oh. and we're still raving about Big Bear Bob bellowing out. I think the song, by the way, is World in a Jug because you might have one or two listeners who are real music aficionados but I can't, I can't what I can't forget from that time and don't forget it's virtually 50 years ago I remember watching them um, you know dismantling the kit and so and I can't I just can't forget the shoegazing sadness of uh, Blind Al Wilson you know they're main guitar player and I, I thought oh my god it looks really sad you know he's just done a great gig and he looks really pissed off but more on that later because um you know for those listeners who um you know know their music you know i'm going to shortly get on to you know what people like myself might have been listening to so you can reference some of the bands but when i'm running through the bands and i don't want to be morbid here that's not the purpose of the podcast i want you to think about which members of this band were dead before they were 30 because it links in with the drugs thing unfortunately don't do it you with me yeah i was going to say is it going to be take a shot for every dead member yeah <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, if you got this dressing gown in your yeah, head, yeah. yeah. So, and I'm linking in with a podcast. I think about three podcasts ago. Does this ring any bells? You're not going out looking like that, lad. You look like a fucking ponce. You're a ginger beer. Does that ring any bells? No, that was that was my father. Yeah, that was my father. Basically, I think we're thinking back to in the pub ah, when you had the fruit right, machine. That's right. what I was trying to think if he has said that before. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't really matter because <laughs> your dad I, thought you were a pons i think yeah interesting there <laughs> I've, got, I've got a couple of david bowie uh artifacts here and uh one thing i didn't realize david bowie i think it would be 1972 actually set up a charity an organization to uh counteract the persecution of long-haired men Hmm. Would you believe? I I I think it probably had about 50 members. They're probably (laughs) all in London. But yeah, so you you did did get hassled, but but so what? Um, I mean, I'm I'm curious, I'm thinking about it. I'm sat here in my Flintstones trousers, and if... You ever looked at me and slipped into your dad's mindset? Of, oh, Indeed, yeah. Oh, Indeed. Jesus, yeah. what's Russell got? I yeah. mean, sometimes I think that about you, to be honest. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, we were watching... Um, that's a program where they combine dating with being in a restaurant. You know the one 
First date. First, First dates, and there's one guy with quite a lined face dressed up as a woman. I, I mean, there must still be, despite the liberal vibe of this time, there must be certain manifestations of, you know, outre behaviour that still set hackles rising. Do you know what I mean? Because thinking to myself, poor sod, if, if, when he goes out, even onto the streets of London, I bet he gets some flack. You've got to. It hasn't disappeared, has it? There's no yeah. way it's... No yeah. way it's disappeared but um this you know painting a picture here again um I, I was wearing yellow loom pants yeah i've got a, i've got a picture of me actually i'll show you later of me on a on a march yeah is it again uh, right, rock right? against racism yeah, march actually but that's uh, a few podcasts down the line so i had my yellow loom pants i had my de-spiked cricket boots yeah cricket shoes uh, but pride of place was this repurposed tartan check dressing gown and it had been converted from um, a dressing gown into what I thought was a very stylish jacket my father obviously disagreed by my gay would-be couturier friend called Stan Stan I did have quite a few friends back then you know I wasn't the lonely kind of figure I am now uh, Stan I'm giving you a bit of gay history here. I mean, I, I don't think from many conversations with him, because he was overtly gay, by the way, didn't try to hide it in any way. I don't think he suffered significant homophobia, to be quite frank, because he, he was, you know, an, an effeminate gay. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Did he ever get... I, I think, yeah, no doubt he got comments yeah. and stuff shouted but over not, at him. But, I, but, but what's interesting, he, he could not bear to live in that small Midlands town. So it was only a question of time before he disappeared off to... You know, what was... Uh, London is special. It's a very liberal place. I remember the first time I, I ever started going there on a regular basis, I'd be about 16. There was a very, very um, conspicuous vibe that you could do and be whoever you wanted. And, uh, you know, back then, uh, obviously homosexuality had been, uh, you know, legalised. Uh, you know, there was a burgeoning gay scene down there and he went to join it um do we, and do, do we know where stan is now or i well I don't, again i don't want to dwell on it but it's something for a later episode i i think he went down in the aids plague oh, well. of, of the 80s but i last saw him um again i'm not being homophobic here because he was quite effeminate i last saw him loosely lisping on a mattress on the floor <laughs> so before you came chris i was reminiscing with russell about how people um you know if you're living in flats or bedsits or whatever you often didn't bother having a bed you had a mattress on the floor but you, you seem to recognize that don't you well <laughs> Current, I know what he's about to say. Currently, yeah. I'm on a mattress on the Oh, floor. are you? Okay, but right. Also, right. if you remember back at the old house, I cut the legs off my bed. That's right. I wanted yeah. to just have a yeah. mattress on the floor, but mum wouldn't allow it. So wow. I did that compromise. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The other big thing, uh, you know, talking about cultural artifacts, because you know me, I'm very hesitant to talk about Findus bloody fish fingers and various sweets that people had. I mean, another feature of the 60s and 70s was waterbeds. Do you, do you, do you even... I've only ever seen them on films. Well, yeah, yeah, they were really dirty good. I mean, they're bloody expensive. 
And uh, I think sometimes they're a terrible accident because can you imagine a double bed, uh, a mattress filled with, it must be hundreds of gallons of water. I think that was the common joke in films, wasn't it? It would either pop or someone would go flying off it. Anyway, there he is sitting on his mattress reading a copy of The Hobbit. Because as you know, the um, vibe around that time was for the mystical and the occult, but I'll Mm. come on to later. But I'm, I'm linking Barney here, little reference to Barney. I remember Stan, one of the last things he said was, and you know, I'm, I'm loving this book, and he said, that fucking Barney, he's Gollum. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, but you, man, are Strider. Oh, that's a compliment. So, narcissism has long roots, doesn't it? It has deep roots. So, welcome to the jungle. And keep reminding yourself that 99.9% of people back then were not interested and they were not invested in any of this and they possibly would be quite hostile. But people like Barney and Stan and I... And Kevin would be out there doing our little bit, trying to... We were would-be hippies, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Kevin did get a bit of shit, actually. Kevin um, was um, part um, West African. Kevin's a new one. Kevin's a new one, yeah. Is that who you used to go to the football with? No, he wasn't a football um, man. No, no. Yeah, no. So Kevin's, Kevin's, Kevin, Kevin's new. Yeah, this, 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 is, this Kevin. is another Kevin. But I, I, but I remember Kevin's come up and because he was um, dual heritage, his mother was white and uh, his father, as I say, was was African. He, he had quite frizzy hair and he was a massive Hendrix fan. Massive. When Hendrix died, he was disconsolate for, hmm. for probably donkey's years. He, he called his son Jimmy. Oh, no. So there's a kid out there going around, <laughs> J-L-I-M-I, Jimmy. His son was called Jimmy. But uh, if, you know, those people out there who know Hendrix's oeuvre and they know all his album covers, Kevin, uh, he stuck his neck and I think he went down to London and Hen- on one of the Hendrix covers he's wearing a cape you know like a Victorian cape with yeah. a, a clasp on it and Kevin definitely got beaten up outside the <laughs> wimpy for wearing his I mean, cape he laugh, he's wearing his cape and of course he had his semi-afro yeah, so um, that was uh, I'm, I'm painting pictures I'm laughing it was outside of wimpy uh, for you here yeah. so you know I, I was into um, I've actually I had most of my albums from that era where I had the or or destroyed or lost or forgotten or whatever. But um, I've got a little sample here. This is uh, Bowie. Bowie was really prominent. If you um, if you get into Bowie, this is a really interesting early album. It's called Pinups, and it's uh, him covering various people who influenced him. Uh, they're all from the sixties. It spans like them. Do you know who the lead singer was from them? Van Morrison. Yeah, Van Morrison. Uh, I've, I've got um, a Pink Floyd album over there. Uh, it's got CMLE Play. It's got a Who song here. I can't explain. Everything's all right. Uh, and on the flip side, it's got Don't Bring Me Down. It's got a couple of Yardbird songs, which, which I've mentioned before. It's got a Ray Davis song. It's got Sorrow, which I think was by the Everly Brothers. But if you're into Bowie, this is a really, really interesting album. The other thing I've got here, of course, will, will be kind of gay pictures inside it. This is Films and Filming from a bit later, October 75. And it's Bowie uh, in The Man Who Fell to Earth. So 
I could have a whole podcast on this. It's it's the fusion, yeah. the creative fusion mm-hmm. between music and film. And um, again, check it out. One of my, uh, you know, I'll stick to my guns. One of my favourite films from this period is by an amazing director called Nicholas Roeg, R-O-E-G. And it's called Performance. Okay. Which, if you if you want an insight into this period, try and get a copy of Performance, which stars Mick Jagger, by the way, Mick Jagger's okay. girlfriend, Anita Palinburg. But um, I was into uh, Iggy Pop, who who later influenced Bowie. You know, yeah. Iggy Pop, as you know, is uh, I, I guess a punk progenitor. You know, I've talked to you before about MC Five and bands like this. I feel like it's weird seeing Iggy so young. Yeah. It is. <laughs> like it's weird as used to him being yeah. an old rocker. Well, he's a seventy-year-old. Um, he's still quite skeletal, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, actually. yeah, still quite Which, skeletal. as he's age, makes him a bit more freaky. Yeah. This is Beefheart. This is Clear Spot. Um, the other feature of the seventies music scene was you did have a kind of a weird fringe, and uh, this is highly listenable. But uh, his the first Beefheart album was called Trout Mask Replica, which you've got to admit is a great title, isn't it? And yes. that is virtually unreasonable. The other person I can maybe from this era uh, include later is Frank Zappa. I think Frank Zappa is being reapprised at the moment. There's a programme uh, coming up soon where he's described as a genius. Zappa, I haven't got a Zappa album here. Um, just in case anybody's out there thinking, oh, this guy only likes the kind of heavy rock thing. I was into Neil Young after the Gold Rush, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. That was fantastic. This is on... Next podcast, I'm going to be talking about festivals, but following the festivals one, I want to talk about glam rock and, and art rock. And so this is Roxy Music. And Roxy Music were massively influential in, in, in their music and, and the way they dress. This um and this is a classic. Uh this is the Stones. I I I you know I was a Stones aficionado from being 13 years old. Uh this one has got some really big songs on it, Miss You, When the Whip Comes Down, Some Girls Lies. Um what I find really interesting um a lot of the well some of the Stones' earth, I've got an article there. Uh, one of their songs is called Brown Sugar. Have you heard of it? Yeah. And they've got into real trouble with that because it's basically about, it's basically about, it's about rape, basically. But if, if you go through, uh, we've talked about this before, a lot of the uh, lyrics, particularly from this era, they, they were... I don't think they were intentionally sexist, but a lot of them are quite sexist. And the other Stone song that comes in for a lot of uh, flack is a song called Under My Thumb, which, you know, it's basically yeah. about, you know, I, I've got this girl. And, and in a later podcast, I, I would like to talk, albeit briefly and very respectfully and, and courteously, about the... Uh, the kind of paedophilia vibe that was around in the 70s. So a lot of these bands, uh, in, I don't think Julian Cope uh, indulged, but, you know, there were 13, 14, 15-year-old girls who were clamouring mm-hmm. for these guys. And uh, particularly, 
you know, the more decadent bands like Led Zeppelin. I'm amazed they're not in court. Put it, put it, put it like that. Yeah. And when I was I rooting, mean, to be honest, yeah. And when I was rooting around in the attic, oh, I bet I better stay decent here because the the other bands I used to like uh, were much more uh, fashionable bands like. Uh, Spirit. Uh, have you heard of Spirit? No. No, they were American. Have you heard of Steppenwolf? Yes. Mm. Yeah? All those kind of bands. Uh, Hendrix. Uh, I even I even like Janis Joplin. So those of you who are sitting in there, keeping the score, you remember? 27 Club, Janis Joplin, 27 Club. Joni Mitchell. Brilliant. Uh, the Blue Album, I think, is one of the best albums of all time. Um, Buffalo Springfield, The Birds, uh, The Kinks, all, all these acts, you know, why I'm mentioning them, I think all of them, were part of what would have been called part of the hippie cultural revolution. Yeah? Yeah. And I'd like to do um, a couple of podcasts about uh, because of my kind of creeping Alzheimer's, why I mention on this podcast, what I'd like to do is when I listen to stuff later, I make a little note of what I mentioned to do later. I'd like to do some stuff later about the concept of revolution. Because obviously, particularly in the States, not so much in the UK, the idea of revolution was very, very strong. And, it, and as we talked about before, in Paris, for example, they were tearing up the bloody paving stones and attacking the police and so on. In America, which I, which I find is really interesting, this kind of kill the pigs thing and, and pulling statues down, I could give you examples going back to the mid-60s where that was going wow. on. Um, so I'd, I'd like to spend a couple of podcasts on that. So that's what I was listening to. But when I was rooting through... Uh, we used to um, live next to a couple and they were very entrepreneurial and, and the lady used to um, have a little uh, DJing thing and God knows how this got there but this is uh, a much later iteration this is these were called Millie Vanilli have you heard no, of Millie no, Vanilli? I can't say I have yeah. that's an excellent name yeah so, like so what my theme here is, although from my my biased perspective, there was a lot of great music around that time. Don't be deceived. There was also an awful lot of absolute shite. Uh, if, you know, if, if you get the charts, for example, because bands like Led Zeppelin actually didn't produce singles; they, they just produced LPs. But Millie Vanilli. I mean, this is how bad it got. Millie Vanilli, you can check it out later. They they shot to absolute meteoric fame. <laughs> I mean, I was playing them earlier, actually. I think your mum quite liked them. I mean, the greatest hit was uh, called Girl, You Know It's True. Kind of pre-Michael Jackson kind of vibe. Girl, you know it's true. You know the kind of thing. And you can see they are really very good-looking fashionable guys aren't they I was going to say I can't I couldn't actually work out very the, effeminate look. the gender indeed which is another podcast by mm -hmm. the way that old gender bending thing 
And the, these two guys, the New Yorkers, they were basically dancers. Okay. They were dancers. And, and uh, what, what happened was, because what I'm talking about here is the kind of artificiality that was going on in the music business and had been going on for, for many, many years. It gets back to what I, I said in my opening five minutes. Everything out there, if you want to be cynical, is artifice. It's illusion, isn't it? It's illusion. Amelie Vanilli had, uh, uh, I think, I think for a time, the song I've just mentioned was, uh, you know, it peaked at number two. It was in the charts for about 26 weeks. Um, and eventually, don't forget, these guys couldn't sing, couldn't play. So the records they put out, it wasn't them singing, but they were out. For, are you with me? So they were just yeah, yeah. fronting the music. But it, it, <laughs> apparently... Because everybody likes these little stories. Apparently, they they played somewhere. I think it was in Connecticut, and uh, they played in front of eighty thousand people. Wow! Can you imagine eighty thousand people? And um, th they came out. Uh, I think they were called More Than and Rob, and they started in eighty thousand people. And they were singing this song I've mentioned. And they came out, and they could do the dancing. You see, see it, can't you? Yeah. 80,000 people who came out doing this amazing dance moves. And it was on in the background. And suddenly it stuck. So when it came to the, cho <laughs> when it came to the chorus, apparently it, it, uh, it, it was going, girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, girl, oh. you know it's. See with me? Yeah. In front of 80,000 people. <laughs> the word true never came up. And... Uh, that was it. Well, it wasn't it, actually, because I think they continued to, to make songs. But the music industry is very, very much like that. Um, so that's Millie Vanilli. That's my, that's my Millie Vanilli moment. Okay. I mean, another little piece of social history here. You, you, you've heard of Charles Manson. Yes. Well, Charles Manson... Uh, when I was uh, much younger, probably, probably 15 or 16, there was a really big popular band, particularly with the teeny boppers, called the Monkees. You heard of the Monkees? Yeah. And the Monkees were, you know, the basic idea was, hey, you know, these Beatles guys are really big. Uh, you know, let's create our own Beatles. And they basically auditioned. It was kind of pre, what's that awful program called? Where they, indeed. Yeah, you know, this was going on 50 years ago. But what's really chilling is apparently Charlie Manson auditioned for the yeah. Monkees, yeah, but failed the interview. Yeah. So had, had Charlie Manson played for the Monkees? Oh, this so episode all makes sense now. Who knows? With Marge's clear flying. And, and she's at, it's, she goes to therapy and she ends up being regressed to school and then someone says, ooh, you like the Monkees? Oh. And then... Also goes, you know they don't write any of their own songs. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. It all makes sense. It all makes sense now. That's a great... Um, little jam. That's a great little reference, that is, isn't it? I think I'm going to have to miss out Carlos Castaneda, by the way. I'll, I'll come on to him in a minute. Have you ever heard of Carlos Castaneda? No. Yeah. He, um... What's interesting is he, um... Was... I'm giving you an insight because I'm going, to, I'm going to move on to drugs in a bit. 
Yes. So I've talked about... Um, we are over that half hour <laughs> what, I, what I'm talking about here is basically the music industry had that strong desire to fleece the masses to fuckery. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to be cynical, somebody like me, I, I was I was just a means to an end. You know, how, how these uh, musical sh movers and shifters found a means of colonising outposts like the Midlands. Yeah? I'm not going to talk about selling out because we talked about that last we time, did didn't that. we? But um, Carlos Castaneda, uh, just to give you a taste of, of the kind of drugs vibe, he um, was uh, an American and he went to Mexico and he teamed up with a shaman. Do you know what a shaman is? Yeah. And he became his his uh, student, and and this shaman was a, a yaki. He he was a, an ethnic, you know, a, a tribesman, and um, he became um, his teacher. And part of a tribal ritual was taking peyote, yeah, which is like a it's like it's a that, cactus. That, yeah, that hallucinogenic. Definitely, yeah, yeah, it's hallucinogenic yeah. stuff. And the, these books, um, you know, you, you, they're probably still selling a few now. In these books, he he ingests these psychedelic uh, substances, one of which was uh, jimson weed, which I'll talk to you about later. Because I, I, me and my friends went out onto the chase and got some jimson weed once. But jimson weed is an interesting one. But in, in the books, he turns into, at one point, he turns into a blackbird, yeah, and flies across the land. And he, he takes on the guise of various, uh, what are now called avatars, you know, supernatural beings. And he was the chosen one. You know, he, he was the teacher. He was, you know, the, the student. Another time he turned into a crow. And it's very much um, into that kind of um, Philip Pullman vibe, you know, how you have a familiar. Yeah. But this shit was selling in thousands, wow. in tens of thousands. You know, if, if you would have come to uh, any kind of literate hippies, uh, crash pad, as it would have been called then, you would have found Carlos Castaneda books. The guy I was talking to you about uh, last time, I think, you know, the plumber from Plimpton. Yes. You remember that one? Yeah. I think his stuff came later. You know the one who was a reincarnation of the Tibetan monk? Yeah. yeah he yeah. came later. But what I'm trying to get you to understand here is this stuff was current. Yeah? This stuff was actually current. Well, everyone, we're going to leave it there for now, finishing on Simpsons references and shamans, two things I hope become staples of this podcast. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to hear about this Jimson weed. I've never heard of it, but I hope you're just as curious as me to know that when the big boys made my dad take it, he turned into a crow as well. As always, we would love for you to join in with the conversation. Don't worry, we are not associated with the police in any way, so all drug chat is completely confidential. By now, you probably all know how to do that, but for any new listeners out there, you can do it by heading over to Twitter and using at a pint with Peter. Or if Twitter is not your thing, you can use the email a pint with Peter at gmail.com. Well, everyone, welcome to the festive period and on to the next one.